For those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you today and along with our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Now a couple of Sundays ago we had a, a review because it's been about 90 days, three months or so since we've been in 1 Peter. And so this morning we're going to pick up with the uh, title of the message, Holding to Authority or Honoring Authority. So one of the things that we're going to do today is to examine two current events in the light of our responsibility as Peter has listed here this morning. Let's read verses 13 through 17. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For, and here you go, this is the will of God. So this is not for debate. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people. In fact, the word people is italicized which means it was added for clarification, not in the original. So what Peter says is honor all. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Some translations read honor the emperor. And at this time, Nero, certainly one of the most despicable Caesars, was the emperor. So compare that with where we are as a nation. And so that's primarily what we're going to do this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again we ask, we beseech you by the mercies, by your mercies, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to the truth of the word. We're to hold to all authority. That, Father, for many of us is difficult. doesn't matter what political persuasion we may have. We still think it's our right to voice our opinion on basically any subject, and in many cases that includes the word of God. So forgive us and make us sensitive to the work of the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First slide, if you would, young man. So a few weeks ago now, we preached, uh, we, we closed out where we were before the Christmas messages and verses 11 and 12. There are three perspectives that Peter is giving us here in, from verses 11 through verses 20. And the first perspective in 11 and 12, let's read those. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, now notice that that's the similar word that he uses in verse 14. And so we'll, we'll exegete that when we get to it. That they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So the first thing that you can take out of verses 11 and 12 is that we are aliens, we're citizens of the world temporarily, but we have a different king. We don't have a president. We have a king. It is essential 
as disciples of Christ to see ourselves this way. Otherwise, we get bogged down in the workaday rules of life. Secondly, in the verses 13 through 17, which we just read for you, even though we are aliens, we are still citizens. Now, we're temporary citizens, okay? And even though our citizenship is in heaven, we live in this mortal world. And we are to conduct our lives honorably. Peter says that in verse 12. And he says here that we are to submit ourselves to every ordinance of man because this is God's will. Now, there are many that we don't like, and we'll, again, as we go through this passage, we'll, we'll look at those. The third thing, verses 18 through 20, let's read those. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. I just can't stand my boss. You've never said that, I'm sure. But also to the harsh. Well, this is commendable if the cause of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faith? How many of you have been beaten for your faith? <coughs> Not I. But this was very commonplace in Peter's day the harsh treatment of servants and slaves. For what is the credit if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, Peter, we spent a great deal of time in Romans chapter 13, and we're going to go back there, not this morning, but later we'll compare what Paul says about our citizenship, our alien nature, and what Peter says. This is actually more to our heart's point than what Paul writes. So as disciples, we need to evaluate ourselves in the light of what the Spirit of God has given to us. Now, there have been two recent events that speak to our citizenship, to our responsibilities in submitting. The first one is the He Gets Us campaign. How many of you have seen that commercial on TV? If you watch the Super Bowl, it was all over the place. He Gets Us. And secondly, the Ashbury Seminary Revival. Have you, I hope that you've heard some about the Ashbury Seminary. We'll talk about that. In fact, we're going to talk about the responsibility that citizens, that aliens have in revival. What you're looking at here is Peter writing about 64, 65 A.D. and revival which began at Pentecost. Easily 30 to 35 years ago is still ongoing. Numbers of individuals have been saved across the Roman Empire. Literally thousands. And this revival lasted about 150, maybe as long as 200 years. You and I are recipients of this revival. So we're going to look at that one secondly, but next slide if you would. He gets us. So let's talk briefly about this. About 100 million people watch Super Bowl here a month or so ago, and 
if you watch for any length of time, and it is not only has not only been on the Super Bowl or during the Super Bowl, but other places as well, there was a message or a campaign entitled, He Gets Us. And the question is, is this a good thing or a bad thing? And then you have to ask yourself this question. What about the message? Well, they referenced Jesus, and they referenced Jesus in this particular campaign. He's the theme of the advertisements. And the implication is that he understands us and that Christ can identify with us. And to that point, yes. That is true. He does understand us, and he does identify with us. That's one of the reasons for the incarnation. But he does not identify with our sin. He identifies with us as a human being, the God-man. So in this particular advertisement, it's consistent with the culture because there are literally scores of images that filter across the, the, uh, the TV or the Internet or whatever. And this is consistent because we don't like words. We just finished preaching a, a series of messages about words. We don't like words. Or at least some people don't. Most people don't now in our culture. We have left reasoning behind. We've gravitated to images. We've looked at photos and, and memes. The main point was Jesus gets us, and he does. He gets the fact that he loves us and that we are sinners. But you don't see that or hear that in the advertisement. So the message is incomplete because there's no clarity in the gospel terms of salvation. What is said is Jesus is a good person, and indeed, we just sang a, a, a chorus. He's strong and he's kind. We get that, and the Bible speaks to that, but he's much more than just a good, good person. He is much more than just a person who identifies with us. How he works to save people in biblical terms isn't shared at all. It's simply put, there are no scriptural references, none that speak to our sin. In fact, there are none at all. None that speak clearly to our sin to our separation from God, to his deity. A little alluding to his humanity, but nothing to his deity. There is no reference to the incarnation. No reference to the substitutionary suffering and resurrection. There's no presentation of the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. It's not found. Now, I'll leave you with this this morning. There's not enough biblical information that is shared. And the biblical information needs to be shared. There is simply no way that anyone can become a believer just watching the advertisement. It's good. It's succinct. It speaks to our anger, which is a good thing because many today are angry. But there's no presentation of the good news. There's no proposal, 
and promotion of Jesus as God the Son. Why is that? Well, we know that there's already been a lot of animus about this particular advertisement from those that disagree. And so if there was even a, a hint of the God-man of Jesus Christ, no doubt the advertisement would be taken off the air. So it has positive effects. But positive effects don't, do not save. No one here this morning was ever saved by some positive effect. We were saved by the prophet, the God-man, Jesus Christ, not presented. So, here's the takeaway. Should someone mention he gets us, and for that, it's perhaps useful. If they mention that to you, you take them to the gospel. You take them to the word. You present Jesus as the Bible presents him. So that's, what's our responsibility concerning this? Our responsibility is that very last statement. We can use this to lead them to the gospel according to Jesus. And the gospel according to Jesus will crush their souls. The gospel according to Jesus will then resurrect them to new life because he loves them yet while they are in their sin. Remember that. Remember that. Next slide. Let's look at the Ashbury Revival. Talk a little bit about revival this morning and our responsibility to revival. As I said, we're reading a passage of Scripture where, where individuals were born again across Asia Minor, literally thousands for, by this time, 30-some years, and eventually about 150 years or so. So it would have been the longest continual revival in man's history. Now, there's a Wesleyan college in Wilmore, Kentucky, by the name of um, Ashbury. In fact, it's called Ashbury Seminary. So it has as its roots, and it's, and for the most part, in my looking at it, it is sound. Now, it has some differences that we, some positions that we would differ from, but not when it comes to salvation. Now, the event, the recent event started on the 8th of February, and it ended this past week. So a little over two weeks. It mostly focused on prayer on testimony and some charismas. In other words, there were some charismatic individuals there. So if you do any reading, you'll, you'll see some of that. We would disagree with that. Very little preaching took place. There were, uh, there were some opportunities and times for, of preaching, but very little over, that to, over those two weeks. A similar event occurred in 1970 when I was a senior in high school. It lasted for almost eight days, about 185 hours. And out of this, it swept across the United States, basically through seminaries, and then it filtered down into churches. And really, revival in seminaries is a great thing. For that means that the men that are being prepared to pastor and to, to preach are called to preach. I was called to preach as a result of this movement in 1974. So when you look back, and that's been, what, 50 years or right at 50 years or so ago now, what came out of this was a great response to the work of the Spirit of God. And from that, now we have, it spawned the Jesus movement, and there's a movie, I've not seen it, some of you perhaps have, that's popularized by the film Jesus Revolution. 
And that's the story of the conversion of Greg Laurie, who is on the board of Billy Graham Evangelistic um, Association. He also pastors uh, uh, Harvest Christian Fellowship in Southern California, one of the largest churches in America. And Laurie was converted under the ministry of Chuck Smith, who was basically the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement that has swept the nation over the past few years. And we're not here to debate the good or bad of either one. I'm just saying that this is what came out of the first Ashbury revival. Now, Jonathan Edwards, a couple of things I want to give you here. We talk about revival. We're going to go back and look at the Old Testament this morning and our responsibility to, to these. Edwards, who was one of the main preachers, along with George Whitfield and John Wesley, during our first great awakening, the first great awakening in the United States led to the Revolutionary War. So you and I are free this morning, or free as Americans, because of a spiritual awakening, a revival that occurred from about 1730 or so to 1760. Edwards was one of the primary individuals that preached during that time. And he said that revival seems to spread on the wings of testimony. You will notice that in the Ashbury revival, there are those that gave testimony. But he went on to write this. He said that emotion the fact that emotion is there or it's not there doesn't really mean anything. Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of an angry God on a night when, on a summer's night when there was a, a thunderstorm in Smithfield, Massachusetts. I've been there. And the story is told that he manuscript his messages and he read everything. Nothing was extemporaneous. This was, came out of the Puritan understanding of preparing messages. And while he was reading the message taken from Leviticus chapter 29, while he was reading the message, the Spirit of God moved in the congregation and people began to wail, people began to weep, people began to fall on their faces before God. And that was considered to be the, uh, the birth of the first great awakening. He would preach solidly every day for six months, sometimes two and three times a day. And thousands of people were converted, along with the preaching of Whitfield, along with the preaching of John Wesley, and many, many others. In his survey of revival, he said, there was a lot of emotion, Sometimes I preached, and there was not a lot of emotion, and yet people were converted. He said there were five marks of the genuine work of God. Now, if anyone was qualified to write about revival, other than what we see in Scripture, it would have been Jonathan Edwards. And he said, the first dear mark is Jesus is honored. Secondly, Satan's kingdom is opposed. And he said this came about when people repented. Thirdly, God's word is highly regarded. Fourthly, God's truth is revealed. And when God's truth is revealed, people are converted and God and others are loved. Peter says a very similar thing here. Remember that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was instrumental in the Welsh revival of the early 20th century. In fact, he was converted as a result of that um, and then became a pastor that preached there in, in uh, Wales for a number of years while hundreds of individuals were being saved. And Lloyd-Jones wrote, a revival is not the church deciding to do something and doing it. 
He said it is something that is done to the church. Something that happens to the church. In other words, revival is the work of God. So, next slide, if you would. Mr. Logan. Now, there's one key element to revival. And that is a keen and profound sense of sin as God sees it. Not our thinking about our sin, but as God sees sin. Again, this was left out of the message in the He Gets Us campaign. But certainly Jesus gets us, even as he sees our sin. It is something that is sovereignly bestowed by God in which a people receive an outpouring of. Zechariah 12 talks about a spirit of grace which brings about pleas for mercy. It's a corporate experience. In other words, it's a fellowship of individuals carried from church to church, from school to school, and then into the church. Revival doesn't occur outside of a church. There has to be a fellowship of believers. That's what we're seeing here. Peter says this. It's not going to go contrary to the teachings of Jesus or the apostles in the New Testament. It happened at Nineveh from the preaching of Jonah and Jerusalem from Peter's preaching at Pentecost. It does not occur because we have a lack of communication. Well, the preacher's just not a good communicator. That's why we're not, no, it has nothing to do with it. Language is no barrier. We see that from Acts chapter 2. It's not a vocabulary problem. Well, he's way high or he's too low. That's not the problem. It takes place when the Holy Spirit quickens believers' hearts. What happened at Nineveh? The Holy Spirit quickened Jonah's heart. And one man preached, and literally tens of thousands of Ninevites repented of their sin. The Spirit of God moves in our midst and teaches us that we can still harbor sin in our hearts. And let's be honest, let's be frank this morning, all of us do. All of us do. It is the work of the Spirit of God to dive into our souls and to root out our complacency to sin. Peter talks about this is the will of God that evildoers may be punished and the good may be praised. Revival occurs when God's people grasp that our sinful hearts are always self-centered at the core. Luke 6, Jesus said, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. It's a heart problem, not a communication problem, not a vocabulary problem, not a preaching too long problem, not a preaching too short problem, none of this. It's a heart problem from believers. And I count myself in that as well. Sinful people are not naturally motivated by love for others. Sin is always driven by what, when, how, and where we want it. No matter what may take place. And so until we come to that understanding, the key element to revival is exposure of our sin, of believer's sin, there will not be revival. Next slide, if you would. Paul Tripp this week said, sin shrinks my awareness and field of my concern down to my wants. This is what I want. Ulterior motives. You've heard me preach about that 
hundreds of times. To my wants, my needs, my feelings. It's me in the center, it's me in control, and it's me writing my own rules. Sin tells me that I have a right to state my opinion, that I have a right to express it however I wish. I have a right to call you out. I have a right to put you down. I have a right to dismiss your feelings, no matter the damage or the consequences. Does that sound familiar? Sin, self-righteousness is always a downer when it comes to revival. Now, interestingly enough, if you would take a thesaurus, or not a thesaurus, but rather a concordance, and you would search for the word, the English word revival, in the Bible it's found one time. One time. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 8. I started doing this study earlier this week, and it disobeys me. The word was not used in Jonah, but revival occurred. The word was not used in Acts, but revival occurred. The word's not used here in First and Second Peter, but revival has occurred. But one of the remarkable things, and I want you to turn with me this morning to Second Chronicles chapter 29. One of the remarkable things is even though the word is not used, the results the impetus and the results of revival is seen under the reign of Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah was one of the few good kings. There were no good kings in Israel, the northern kingdom. Hezekiah was one of the few good kings in Judah. He followed King Ahaz. There were four kings that the prophet Isaiah prophesied to, and Hezekiah was the last one. Isaiah also prophesied to Ahab, who was one of the more wicked kings. So you have a godly prophet who preached to Ahaz, and it didn't make any difference at all. He his display of idolatry is uniquely dismaying, even in the context of the Old Testament. This is the father of Hezekiah. And in 2 Chronicles 28, just before 29, look at verse 22. Now, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, cut in pieces the articles of the house of God, shut up the doors of the house of God, and made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked anger the Lord God of his fathers. He goes on to say in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter that he made even metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. Hezekiah was hid. The only reason he survived. according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord drove out before the peoples of Israel. Next slide. Now the good news is you have a young man that becomes king. Verse 1 of chapter 29. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter, daughter of Zechariah. This is not Zechariah, the prophet. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Two principles of revival, and we'll close with these this morning. I'll bring it, bring it all together at the end. Two principles. Holiness. 
if there is a, uh, a, a deep and penetrating understanding of our sin before God, it will always yield holiness. And the second one is hostility. No one is ever saved. No one's ever converted without it angering the devil. And we're going to see that in 1 Peter as we go through this passage of Scripture. The four elements of holiness that I want you to look at here in chapter 29. The first thing, there must be a cleansing of acknowledged sin. Verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. People set about twerking. Now, this is Solomon's temple. Beautiful, one of, one of the great, grandest edifices in the ancient world. And he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourself, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Spring cleaning. Declutter. Get the idols out of here. Where our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God, they have forsaken him. They've turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and they've turned their backs on him. They've shut up the doors of the vestibule. They've put out the lamps. They've not burned incense, offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering. As you see with your eyes, you talk about testimony. As you can look out and tell. You can look at America. Look with your eyes. In your ears. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be ne negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him to serve him, and you should minister to him and burn incense. In other words, for what you were appointed, get to work. It's important to remember that Hezekiah, being king, certainly had the divine right to institute this, and the Lord blessed him for it. What we're reading in 1 Peter and what we read in the book of Romans, revival does not occur on the political climate. All our ducks do not have to be in row. Everything has to be past that the right agrees with, a past that the left agrees with. It has nothing to do with that. And yet we have duped ourselves as Americans to believe that the political climate has everything to do. No, it doesn't. It does not. We'll speak about that as we move through this first Peter. Peter and Paul endured in Rome. Remember we just read first Peter 2 about the harsh treatment of servants. It can occur in pagan or supposedly religious cultures. As Peter said, it's the will of God is that you punish the evildoers so that the praise may occur. The Christian must live quietly and be dependent on no one. Taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul wrote this. We are commanded to be subject to every human institution. Peter said this in verse 13. We are commanded to honor the emperor, honor the king, honor the president, every president. We're preaching, can I talk about him? Absolutely. But we're to honor them. Take it from verse 17, 1 Peter 2, and Paul would write a similar thing in the first seven verses of chapter 13. These commands, so far as they do not contradict the commands of God, and we will, again, we'll go through that, generally apply regardless of national politics. Secondly, the first 
element is there must be a cleansing of acknowledged sin. Secondly, God's leaders heed the call to holiness and sacrifice. I'm not going to read all these verses, but from verse 12 to 19, the Levites get to work. Notice verse 12. Then these Levites arose and enlist these. Now, not all the Levites were priests. In fact, the minority were priests. The majority took care of the temple and all of the activities that went in preparing to worship the Lord. Verse 15, they gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves, and they went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. And that's what they did. Verse 17, now they began to sanctify on the first day of the first month, and on the eighth day of the month they came to the vestibule of the Lord. They sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. A few weeks ago we looked at the sanctification that took place when the tabernacle was was uh, introduced, and it took eight days for that sanctification to take place. They're obedient to the Word of God. They're not cutting corners. 18, they went into King Hezekiah and said, We've cleansed all the house of the Lord. They altered the burnt offerings with all of its articles, the table of the showbread with all of its articles, all the articles which King Ahaz, your father, In his reigns been cast aside and his transgression be prepared and sanctified and they are before the altar of the Lord. We cleaned house. Then King Hezekiah, verse 20, rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, went up to the house of the Lord. God's leaders heed the call to holiness and sacrifice. They cleansed themselves they saw to it that their kinsmen were cleansed, that the temple was cleansed, and all of its instruments. Next slide. Verse 20, revival will demand prayers and sacrifice. We're going to speak more about prayers as we go through 1 Peter chapter 2. We are not as believers to use the carnal tools of the world to accomplish the evangelization of our country or the world. The morally therapeutic deism that has infiltrated churches across this land around the world, uh, as a matter of fact. And so we think if we're living morally... And so we must be careful. Should we live morally? Yes. But we're not promoting our self-righteousness because we're moral people. Gordon was teaching this morning from Philippians chapter 2, our Savior humbled himself in the form of God and the form of a slave. In the Incarnation. As Zechariah said, this spirit of grace and pleas for mercy will not be ours apart from looking on him who has been pierced. Jesus must always be exalted. Jonathan Edwards said that. Let that never be lost on us. It only takes place when those that are guilty of sin plead for mercy. Well, my sins are forgiven. Yes, they are. Mine are too. That doesn't mean that he's him for who he is. Seeing our sins humbles us. And most people don't like to be humble. Cultural reform will profit nothing. Only the cross of Jesus Christ can revive us. God's word is returned to its proper place. Look at chapter 30. Verse 1, and Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord of Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. So he sent a great army of individuals, of messengers, to take with them. Look at verse 5. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan, from the north to the south, that they should come to the Passover to the Lord God of, of Israel at Jerusalem, since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. They go back to obeying the Word of God. 
Well, we don't really need the Passover, okay? So the Word of God moved in their hearts and in their souls. As we look at this passage, look at verse 8 now. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. But yield yourself to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord our God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive, led them captive, so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, will not turn his face from you if you return to him. Verse 11, nevertheless, some from Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves. Verse 10 it says, many is from Zebulun, but they laughed at them and mocked them hostility. But some did come. Gave themselves singleness of heart to obey the command of the king of the leaders at the word of the Lord. The revival means a return to God's ways and means. Not ours, to God's ways and means. The fourth thing here, God's people, because of the work of the Levites, God's people confess their sin. They get rid of their idols. They got rid of them. They had home idols, just like the Romans did. They got them out. And they destroy them. They put them away. Verse 1, chapter 31. Now when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces, cut down the wooden images, threw down the high places of the altars from all Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. Can you imagine how much Money was lost when you get rid of idols. Revival will bring about a monetary change. Hezekiah, verse 2, appointed the divisions of the priests and Levites according to their divisions, each man according to his service, the priests and Levites, for... Three things, burnt offerings, peace offerings, to serve, to give thanks, to praise the gates of the camp of the Lord. So the results came. Verse 4, moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priest. It's going to cost you something. <coughs> that they might devote themselves to the law. Of the Lord. They bring in the abundantly the tithe of everything in verse 5. The tithe of the holy things in verse 6. Verse 7, the third month they began laying them in heaps and they finished in the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and the leaders came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. Azariah, the chief priest, said, Since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, we've had enough to eat and have plenty left. The Lord has blessed his people, and what is left is in a great abundance. Wow. Hearts are changed, attitudes are changed, souls are changed. When revival takes place. Next slide. We'll bring this to a close. So holiness occurs. Those four areas. Hostility. Revival enrages the enemy. And make no mistake. We wrestle against principalities and powers. In chapter 32 is the story of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. 
Sennacherib had for years tried to besiege Jerusalem. Verse 2, when Hezekiah saw the Sennacherib had come and that his purpose was to make war against Jerusalem, this is after the great revival. Well, everything's fine now. The Lord's going to, hey, he's going to bless us until the cows come home. No. There's hostility. He consulted with his leaders. This is Hezekiah and commanders to stop the water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. One of the first things that ancient, uh, and probably still practice, but one of the first things ancient armies did was that they cut off the water supply to the cities and the food supply. They'd starve people to death or they'd thirst to death. Hezekiah was bright enough to know that was one of the things we're going to do, so they changed all of this. Look at verse 8. With him, Sennacherib, is an arm of the flesh, but with us and the Lord our God to help us to fight our battles. And the people were strengthened by the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Verse 15, Sennacherib sends a note back to the Hebrew people. He says, Now therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, persuade you like this. Don't believe him. For there is no God of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? He had assembled an army of almost 200,000 men against Jerusalem. He also, verse 17, wrote letters to revive the Lord God of Israel to speak against him. And basically the same thing, God of Hezekiah is not going to deliver you. Verse 19, they spoke against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth, the work of men's hands. What a spirit, what a great phrase from the Spirit of God, the work of men's hands. Now because, verse 20, of this king Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah the son of Amaz prayed, cried out to heaven. Oh, we've got to get an army. Look at that army that's come over the hill. And the Lord sent an angel who cut down every mighty man of valor leader and captain in the camp of king of Syria. He returned shamefaced to his own land when he had gone into the temple of his God. Some of his own offspring struck him down with the sword. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. When God grants revival, we shall receive it joyfully. But we also should know that God's going to test his people. We'll be blessed, but we will be tested. It happened with Paul in his writing. It happened with Peter in his writing. Thanksgiving follows. We see that in the latter part of chapter 31. And I want you, I'll leave you with this this morning. The United States is not Israel. So there's, a, there's an application here, but the interpretation doesn't apply to America. In the church today, you and I operate under a new and better covenant than what we see here in this great revival that took place under Hezekiah. These reforms give us a picture of the renewal that you and I as children of God should strive for, that we should labor for, that we should pray for. Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed. You think God's changed his weapons of war? No. We need to ask the Lord for the type of revival that brings political renewal. 
Yes, right and wrong. That brings a corporate consecration from the fellowship, from the church, in the Lord's service. That pleads via preaching the atoning blood of Christ. The glad, worshipful singing that we enjoy every Lord's day. And if we don't know what type of renewal is needed, we cannot pray for revival. It's not generic. God's same revival. There's specificity always in what God requires of you and of I. I'll bring this out next Sunday morning. But endemic to revival is an attitude of submission. What Peter is writing in 1 Peter chapter 2 continued the revival even after he was crucified and Paul was beheaded. It doesn't revolve around me. It didn't revolve around Jonathan Edwards. It didn't revolve around Jonah. It didn't revolve around Peter. It didn't revolve around Hezekiah. It was the work of God in his people. If we want revival, if we want to be responsible citizens, then we, as God's people, need to humble ourselves in this manner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to see uh, <clears throat> what took place thousands of years ago. Now, Lord, we do understand if we read further into Second Chronicles that in just a, two, two more kings, that Judah had returned back to idolatry. But during this time, there was a great awakening, and you used it to spare the people from Assyria. Now, later Babylon would take them into captivity because they did revert. But, Father, there was an awakening that occurred there. In fact, Prophet Zechariah that we've just read several times this morning, the work of grace and a plea for mercy. as citizens, as aliens. Teach us that. We're aliens. We're not like unsaved people. Our citizenship is temporarily here. Whether we are Americans, whether we're, we're French, whatever we may, we may be. And so to teach us that we are to trust you, teach us we're to pray, we're to use what you have given to us to accomplish your work and your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. And if the Lord has spoken to you, if you're here today and you do not know the Lord as Savior, <clears throat> He does get you, and he gets you as Lord. He loves you. His desires change you. You can come just as you are, but he will not leave you as you are. That scares a lot of people. But that's the truth of what the Word of God teaches us. We're going to sing a, one verse, and if the Lord's spoken to your heart, you can make your way out of the pew this morning. We can take you to a private prayer room. You can, uh, we can pray with you, show you through scripture, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can receive him as Savior and be born again. Have your name revealed in the Lamb's Book of Life and then likewise become a citizen of heaven. If you're here today as child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Perhaps you know the Lord as Savior. You need to follow him in believer's baptism or unite with uh, Flat Creek on promise of a letter or statement of faith. We encourage you to do that this day. It's a child of God. Should we pray for revival? Absolutely pray for revival. But we need to pray for revival in light of who we are. Not who our friends are, not who our family are, but in light of who we are so that God would bring the reality of who we are. When God does a work like this, is the Ashbury revival, um, was it genuine? Time will tell.
I certainly can't judge that. I know that the one that occurred in 70 was genuine, the result of which many, many individuals were called into the ministry. That is what happened under Hezekiah. That's what happens today. So we need to pray to that effect. What number, Brother Mike? 291. 291. If the Lord's spoken to you, won't you come?